The pathogens are evolving. They're more deadly now than they've ever been. But the standard tools that a housekeeper needs to use, a bucket, a mop, a wipe, they really haven't evolved. They need new tools. And that's what we are. We're trying to give them, the, the cleaning staff, a, a, a tool to reduce that risk in the environment. You're listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, a podcast for professionals responsible for the safety and well-being of their employees. Each episode features an interview with a leader in employee safety to discuss how to protect your employees from a wide array of threats, from severe weather to a global pandemic. Let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast, where for just a few minutes of your day, we provide insights and ideas for keeping safe your most valuable asset, your people. I'm your host, Peter Steinfeld, and I'm joined today by Dr. Mark Stipek. Mark is an epidemiologist with a PhD in behavior change and health communication from John Hopkins University. He's also the chief science officer for Xenex Health Services. And for those of you unfamiliar with Xenex, they make these, I mean, I mean, amazing germ zapping robots, which we'll definitely get into as the conversation unfolds. But first, Mark, how are you? I'm, I'm good. It's great to be here. Thank you. Excellent. Well, I, I really appreciate you making the time and I look forward to getting into our topic today, which is how organizations can improve employee safety at work during a pandemic. But before we jump into that, can you tell our listeners just a little bit more about your background, what Zenex does, does at a high level, and we'll get into the details of the robots later. Sure. So, um, you know, as you said, I'm an epidemiologist. Um, uh, I actually focus in infectious diseases and, um, and, so, and so does Zenex. So the, the mission of the company is to, you know, reduce the deaths and suffering caused by infectious diseases. And, um, you know, prior to SARS, we've been very busy with um, SARS-CoV-2 and, and, and COVID. And prior to that, we were really focused on um, healthcare acquired uh, infections, like, you know, people who, you know, they go into the hospital for one thing and they get an infection while they're there and trying to prevent that. So that, that goes back to kind of the early days of Xenex. And so what, what was the primary problem you were trying to solve? Was it the nosocomial or hospital acquired infections? Yes. And, and what, you know, what we see is that, you know, infection control in hospitals touches on a whole bunch of different um, things. You've got, you know, sterile practices and hygiene, everything else. But one of the ones that's really hard to get ahead of is what I'll call environmental hygiene or, or cleaning. Um, so basically when there's been a lot of studies, when, when we go into a room and if you mark each surface with kind of a black light dye, and then you see if the, the housekeepers even like touched it in the amount of time they're given about 50% of surfaces don't get touched. And then meanwhile, you know, when we were starting the com company, we saw more and more, um, the pathogens were getting much more serious. So you see more antimicrobial resistant organisms and some of them, like, um, they can live in the environment for up to six months and be viable. And so those missed surfaces are creating a lot of risk. And we wanted to move in and create, figure a way to automate that risk, remove the human error and, and protect patients and staff and visitors and everyone. What's kind of scary is that hospitals, like literally, they spend a lot of time and effort and money actually cleaning. I can only imagine what places that are not like hospitals look like under, <laughs> under that black light. Yeah, <laughs> and we'll absolutely. talk about that in a little bit. But <laughs> right now it's a little scary because yeah, hospitals, they're monitored, they're accreditation, there's all departments and systems. And um, a lot of cleaning is um, cleaning and not disinfection. So it's, it's visual only and right. correlation between, you know, something that appears clean and whether it's microbiologically disinfected or safe is, is there, there's the two very different things. Well, why is hospital safety uniquely challenging when it comes to making sure facilities are free of these germs and viruses and things like that? 
Yeah, because you have you have two, kind of two main issues going on in a hospital when you think about it from kind of epidemiology. One, you have immune compromised people. It's filled with immune compromised people because they're sick. That's why they're in the hospital. So they have conditions. Um, you know, whether it's other infections heart disease, cancer, whatever it might be that's brought them into the hospital, makes them more susceptible. And meanwhile, of course, if someone gets a really bad infection, they also go to the hospital. So we're, we're concentrating the antimicrobial resistant organisms, we're concentrating these really bad, bad organisms all in the same place, and we're then putting people who are really vulnerable to them also in the same place. So infection control is utterly critical. And, um, and what we like to say is, you know, the pathogens are evolving. They're more deadly now than they've ever been. Um, but the standard tools that a housekeeper needs to use, a bucket, a mop, a wipe, they really haven't evolved. They need new tools. And that's what we are. We're trying to give them, the, the cleaning staff, a, a, a tool to reduce that risk in the environment. So clearly then UV light, ultraviolet light is what you guys use in your robots. How is it superior to these other methods? Why is that better than just having someone wipe down surfaces and things like that? Sure. So there's UV light and then we produce, a, you know, within the UV light category, we produce a very specific kind, which is what we call pulse xenon. Mm. So we're taking a xenon gas lamp and throwing a whole bunch of electricity in there. And, and what that does is it creates a really high intensity light and it covers all these different wavelengths that are, are germicidal that affect the organisms. What's good about that is um, if, you, if you picture a, a hospital room, the, the high touch areas, you can stand at the foot of the bed and you can see all of the high touch areas, you know, the bed rails, the, the tray table, the drawer pulls, you know, all of the things that are gonna, the remote control, all of the things that are gonna be contaminated and also touched by anyone who comes in there. And what's great is because they're out there and exposed, if I can shine a light, I'm gonna hit all of their surfaces automatically every time. So it removes this element of human error and rather than relying on someone to go to each of the surfaces and wiping them correctly, and with the right amount of disinfectant that sits on the surface for the right amount of time, mm. I can automate all of that with the robot and just say, here, if you place the robot in this one or two positions in the room, we're going to get all of those surfaces and we're going to give you assurance that that area has been disinfected and is ready for the next patient. And do they have to do both, like a physical cleaning and the, and the light or just the light is enough? Well, so we have, we've had studies and there, there's been some done at the VA there in Texas where they do like what we call a quick clean or a hotel clean. And so basically go in, make the room look good, and then let the robot do the disinfection. And we find that's better than if we only say, you know, have the people just do the disinfection. So quick Got clean it. plus Xenix is better than what's happening standard. Um, but that's not the common protocol. So normally what we, we want to make, we want to just eliminate these pathogens. So what normally happens is they go in and do everything they normally do. And then we're going to add Xenix on top of that. Okay. Um, so we're not reliant on them to clean. But, but that's typically the protocol because we want to do everything possible to remove these pathogens from the environment. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, in recent months, there's been a lot of discussion with COVID-19 about the idea of airborne transmission and a lot less about surface transmission. And I mean, I just remember that, that visual that they, it was like a video of a guy sneezing in a grocery store. It was like an animation. Yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. show the, how it, oh, it was crazy how far it spread, but I mean, what should the listeners know about the risk of employees getting infected from coming into contact with objects that carry the virus versus things that are transmitted airborne? Right. So I would say, you know, and there, I think there's kind of some misinformation now on, on surfaces. And, and the real answer to the question, you know, do, do, do surfaces matter yeah. for SARS-CoV-2? It depends. Um, and so we'll start about that, and then we'll jump to air. So 
when you think about a surface, you have to think about, you know, what's the likelihood it's come into contact or been around someone who is positive? How long was that surface exposed to them? You know, it's one thing if I'm handing, you know, my, my letter carriers takes an envelope out of the, the bag and then hands it or puts it in the mailbox, that exposure was very, very short. It's another thing if I'm at a workstation for eight hours. You know, if, I, if I'm asymptomatic and I'm at a workstation for eight hours, I'm breathing my droplets, those surfaces are gonna have, receive much more potential contamination. So mm-hmm. one is the duration of exposure. Another thing to think about is what types of surfaces. So the hard surfaces, plastics, glass, things like that, the virus can survive for days on. And not just, it's not just a matter of that we can recover the virus, but we can then grow that out in the lab so it can cause an infection. And then the next part of that is, as the next person coming into contact with those surfaces, what is that exposure? Am I opening the letter just with my finger and then that's it, that's my total contact with it? Or am I sitting at a workstation that someone was at the day before and I'm spending eight hours there? Yeah. Those are very different types of exposures. And so, you know, in the workplace, especially, I think some of the critical things to think about is if someone calls them sick, maybe they don't have their COVID test back yet. We don't know. They're just not coming in. They're not able to come in. They have symptoms. They're doing the right thing. They're staying home. How can we, how can we make sure that the, the surface is there, that there's no risk left? And that's where, you know, we, where Xenix would come in and we like, we're going to disinfect that person's workstation. We're going to go do the bathroom that they use, all of the areas they might have used if there's a common area. We want to make sure those are disinfected because it's, it's clear that the virus can survive, you know, days in those types of environments. It's fascinating because you see that the virus is spreading, yet you have people going to grocery stores and they're breathing out everywhere. You got t- people touching the same boxes and food. And like, where's all this, like, where, where's the spread stemming from? Is it our interaction in those places? Is it more just family members getting together and one of them's infected and they spread it to the other person? It's pretty fascinating to trace all that. Right. And when you do the contact trace, at least the data that's showing up now is most people don't know. Like if, if, you know, someone gets infected, you say, where do you, can you track this back to a clear exposure? And unless it, there was, you know, something obvious where there was someone else in their household who had COVID before, a lot of times people just don't know. It's a little scary, yeah. but it's also saying that, you know, we're still learning about this virus and how it spreads and how behavior and transmission all interact. That is interesting. Well, as we speak right now, it is early December, 2020. And we're seeing a huge increase in COVID-19 cases in a lot of countries around the world. It's not just here in the U.S., but here alone, I think it was on the Wall Street Journal this morning, just like a surge in cases compared with like a month ago. So if we bring it back to the workplace, not necessarily hospitals in general, uh, but what do listeners need to know about the unique challenges of this virus in particular as it relates to employee safety in the workplace? What are your thoughts at a high level? Yeah, I think one of the, the biggest things, and there's been, you know, a lot of talk about it, but is the idea that the, the asymptomatic carriers, not everyone who's infectious will, you know, have symptoms, will have a fever and all that. So certainly, you know, you want to screen out anyone who has fevers, do all the COVID questions, you know, and be able to remove those people from the environment. Um, but that's not going to get everyone. And then, and then I think there's also a lot of confusion out there on testing and, yeah. and what testing is good for and when testing matters. And, and the, the, piece that I see people missing a lot are the nuance is that if I have an exposure on a Monday and I test negative on a Wednesday, that doesn't mean that exposure is cleared. Right. I could develop that infection. Now CDC came out with some new guidelines saying at least a week I need to isolate from the last time I was exposed to that person. The negative tests just tell you not yet, but they don't clear you. So if I get exposure on a Monday, get a test of that, you know, two hours later, 
I haven't had time to develop an infection. That test is going to come back negative because I, you know, the infection might take two to five days, two to six days on average to develop. And so once I'm exposed, I'm, I'm stuck for a week at least if and CDC would prefer everyone to do two weeks, but they're um, just a few days ago, they came out saying they understand that's really difficult for people. But right now the guidelines is if you're exposed would, would really like you to quarantine for 14 days. Yeah. Um, you could do seven days if you have a negative test. Um, it's not clear when that test is taken. Right. Um, or you could do 10 days without a negative test. And, and I understand why they did that because, you know, it, it doesn't affect people's employment and livelihood. And, and that, that does still catch the highest probability window, which is basically about, it peaks at about five days after exposure. Right. Or if someone were to develop the virus, that's when it would happen. So net net companies really should be adhering to if they can at all possible 14 days before you get people coming back in. Right. And then I think it would also depend on what's happening when they come in. Like if, if, if I were exposed seven days, if I need to come in, I, I still want to do good source control. I'm still going to yeah. want to have that, you know, wear the mask, going to be really cautious and really, really think about, do I need to come in? Is this a risk that's, that's worth it? Is this, you know, and there's a balance to all of it. And it ends up being, and I get the question a lot. I, I call it the, the person C question. You know, person A has COVID, person B was exposed to COVID, person C was exposed to person B, but not person A. Yep. <laughs> and that's just maddening because, you know, the answer is, is almost always it depends. And, um, you know, and again, if person B tests negative after the exposure to person C, right, that's logical. But in the meantime, what I've been telling people is person C, you know, they're not, they technically haven't been exposed until they know that person B was negative, they can go to work. But when they do so, it should be very, not that we, we shouldn't be hypervigilant all the time, but that person should be hypervigilant. They should realize there may have been an exposure. Right. They should do good source control at work, minimize their time with individuals in small spaces, conference rooms and all that. But if they have to go to work, they're an essential worker. Um, it's still allowed. Um, you know, they very well in all likelihood, the person B is going to test negative and they'll be fine. But in the meantime, until they know that to wear, you know, to make sure they're wearing a good mask and make sure they're following all the protocols. Right. Just limit exposure. We just had to go through that math problem in my family. My son is going back to school and he was in a room where one of the other kids had tested positive. So then he was quarantined for 14 days. I'm now person C, my wife, yeah. my other kids, person C, right. And we're like, well, what should we do? Right. <laughs> It yeah, was, it was and, and, yeah, and there's not a really good answer. And you know, a lot of it depends on is testing available? How quickly will testing results get back? So, so testing can help solve that a little bit, but it's, it's not dependable when the test will happen and, and results are getting really difficult for people. Well, several pharmaceutical companies have announced recently some pretty encouraging data stemming from vaccine trials. And I know the CDC just made recommendations for who should receive it first once they're finally approved, which hopefully will come out here any day now. So what should employers expect, expect in the next, call it six to 12 months, once the vaccine begins to be distributed around to a lot of people, not just a few? So I think that it'll be decided on a, a state-by-state level in the end, but the, you know, we'll, the, the vaccine will go to healthcare workers and, and vulnerable persons first, namely nursing homes, um, the elderly and other vulnerable persons. So yeah. I don't anticipate it being really available for, for the general population even essential businesses, which is different from essential healthcare, um, until spring, um, say April, you know, we might see that. What's a big unknown is, you know, they could, they're estimating the ramp up and the, the dosage availability. The other unknown is um, well, how, how much demand will there be? Some surveys showed 42% of people said 
they don't want to take it. Um, I think employers will have to decide, you know, is this something they were going to mandate? And, and what would that mean? And, and is that appropriate? And is that right for their, their business, their workplace, their risks? Um, so that's one question. The other thing I think is really important for everyone to keep in mind is that just because I get the shot on, a, it's because I get the vaccine on day one, I don't have protection on day one. The booster is either three to four weeks. I think it's 21 days. Wow. Um, you get this, the booster. And then after the booster, there's another a couple of weeks before full protection. So from the time you get the first shot to when you're fully protected, it might be five weeks. And so people getting it now um, in December, because hopefully we'll get the approval and there's you know 20 million shipping and all of this, all wonderful news. Um, those individuals won't be fully protected till February. Man, this is going to be difficult for employers to figure out. Number one, which of my people are getting it and can I mandate that they get it? There's the legal minefield there. And then yeah. second, figuring out the math of when it's going to be available and how long is it going to take before it finally kicks in. So, I mean, in your opinion, if someone says, I really need to open my office back up, we don't have to be there, but for business, we know it's better. Is Are we looking sometime like summer before that's going to be a real possibility if they want to really follow the rules? What I've been telling people and, and what we were doing at, at Zenix for, for non-essential plan on June. We'll see what happens. June. If we get good news before then that's wonderful, Yeah. but let's all mentally calibrate, you know, just to take the stress of next month. Yes. No, just the sort of variability. Let's just calibrate to say June that gets us through the school year. And then um, if there's good news before then, that'd be wonderful. But otherwise we can kind of set expectations that way. And once we have, let's say 70, 80% of people taking the vaccine, hopefully we can get there. I know that I think those are the figures to get herd immunity. Yeah, 70% that... considered kind of herd immunity. Okay. At that point, will people still have to wear masks? Two points there. One on herd immunity is um, when we say 70%, there's this assumption that there's like a, 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 a evenly mixing population, which there's mm, not. Yeah. And so we may achieve herd immunity in nursing homes in February. Yeah. There's an, which would be amazing and wonderful because that'll take tons of. I think something like thirty-eight percent of all deaths are from this the elderly nursing home population. Wow. And then you know, a proportional number of hospitalizations are also from there. If we can get herd immunity in those populations that's going to take the pressure off of healthcare. Yeah. And that's going to reduce the mortality and the morbidity of the virus in an amazing way. Yep. And, and so, but then to get herd immunity and like college kids is different from herd immunity and working people. And we're all not mixing evenly. So I think right. that's one thing to think about is that it's going to flow in these populations differently. Uh, and that's going to affect things. And then do we need to wear masks right now? There's no data on whether someone who's been vaccinated or for that matter, someone who's previously had the virus. So basically someone who has immunity, whether they can also continue to transmit the virus. So the is, assumption now is we will continue to wear masks. Is there a, a, like, there's a lot of debates on masks and there's like, if it's not an N95 or a KN95, why even bother? Because this thing is so small. What are your thoughts on that? What are you telling people? So masks are good. Uh, <laughs> masks, masks help tremendously. They're one of our best tools. Um, yes, there's a, a, a grade of masks. So you have the N95 yeah. and then you have the bandana and everything in between. Yeah. Um, the mask, there are two purposes for masking. One is source control and one is to protect the individual masking. Hmm. And so as a public health measure, as a service to the community, um, putting a mask on is source control. So if I happen to have, I might not know it, I might be asymptomatic, but I have COVID, I could transmit COVID. As you go down the continuum of masks, that will control more and more droplets. But the difference between no mask and a cloth mask 
uh, our surgical mask is is huge in terms yeah. of the percentage of droplets, the spread of droplets, the amount of droplets that I might spread. Um, in terms of protecting me, that's a little different. Um, you know, the, the cloth mask, as you breathe, you know, the, the air is going to be pulled in from the sides. There's right. no filtering of the air so much. So how much does that mask protect me is a different question for how much does that mask control the source. Okay. But me talking to someone else wearing a cloth mask, them wearing the cloth mask protects me. I like using the seatbelt analogy. When I get in my car to go to maybe the grocery store or wherever, I put my seatbelt on. The probability of the seatbelt protecting me on that car ride is very, very little. But if we all, every time we go to the grocery store, all 300 million of us put on a seatbelt, it's going to save multiple people's lives every day. Yeah. And so that's sort of this probability mindset. If we all put the mask on, it's going to protect all of us. It's going to protect someone somewhere for sure. It's going to reduce probabilities of transfer everywhere. Yeah. And that's, that's. Are people going to be wearing masks going forward from, from now and into the indefinite future? Or do you see that kind of waning? Like in Asia, you see a lot of people wearing masks all the time. Right. Um, I, I think there'll be a, a mix. I, I've heard some hospital systems saying, you know what, we're just going to keep masks on. This, hmm. this is kind of cool for infection control, for flu, for everything else. It's like, the hospital environment has pathogens in it and why not just continue to wear masks all the time? So there's some, there's some push for that. It's like we've upgraded infection control. Why don't we maintain it? Like apart from SARS-CoV-2, there are 2 million, you know, healthcare associated infections every year. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of people are affected. They die. You know, it's just a huge problem. We have the flu, you know, other infections, colds, all of this, like, one could argue for employee health and not having to come to work sick or not having to stay home. Mass might make sense during flu season. And, and we don't know where COVID's going to end up. We know that immunity for people who've had it, it you know, it seems to last at least six months, which mm -hmm. is really wonderful news. But we don't know how long that's going to be. We don't know how long the immunity for the vaccine will actually be. We might be having to take, you know, vaccines multiple times um, or at some sort of schedule. So yeah. mask might make, make sense moving forward for, for many reasons. Well, I can certainly see people wearing masks on airplanes into the foreseeable future. And a lot of our listeners, they're, they're business travelers too. So as an epi epidemiologist, what do you want to see in terms of safety precautions to feel comfortable getting on a plane right now? <laughs> yeah. So, so the great news on planes is that the air, the air system seems to be working very well. And what that does is, you know, it's circulating the air when, during flight. And that keeps um, the virus concentration from getting kind of to a dangerous level for mm. the most part. So we, we haven't traced a lot of infections back to air travel, but that is the, with the caveat, a lot of people don't know where they got infected from. Yeah. Um, the, I, I think, you know, in my experience, and I have flown, um, a, a couple of things were kind of odd to me or things I would improve is one, when I got on the plane, um, everyone's wearing masks. They've been pretty good about it. I had my, I had an N95 and I had goggles on. Um, everyone was being pretty good, but they gave you a little bottle of water and a little cookie. And so masks would come off to, you know, to drink the water and all this. Like, it would be better if we just didn't do that. Everyone kept their mouth. If, if, if someone has low blood sugar, whatever. Yeah, by all means, they, they can have whatever they need, but we don't need to sort of open that up for everybody. You know, you know that, that seemed odd to me. Yeah. And the other thing, the other part that's kind of risky um, when the air circulation system on the plane is on, it's very, very good. Um, but at the gate, sometimes that's not switched on yet, depending on the boarding status and everything else. And some of the more dangerous moments are, you know, if the plane's delayed, they switch off the engines 
And at that point, wow. you're not getting the air recirculation in the plane. So if you have an option, if they say, hey, we, we're delayed, you can sit on the plane or go into the gate area, well, go into the gate area because that, uh-huh. that air system is not the same as when it's in flight or when it's independent, when it's hooked up to the gate. So that's, that's one thing to really think about. And the other thing is I always, and I did this before um, the pandemic, I always have my air on full blast because it, it, the air coming out is quite clean okay. and quite disinfected and filtered. So that creates kind of an air barrier for you. So you want to have that airflow um, on as much as you can. Okay. And then what about like on the jetway when you're in between the gate area and the airplane? Yeah, there's no air circulation there. Um, yeah. I, I like that. Of course, not everyone can do it, but I like to be last on first off uh-huh. uh, <laughs> whenever possible. Uh, of course, only one person gets to do that. Right. But um, it, as a principle, like there's no reason to board early. Um, do whatever you have to to kind of tail that out because the, the less time you're on the plane, especially while it's still uh, you connected to the jet right way, the um, less risk will be. Okay. That makes total sense. Well, the other thing a lot of employers are wondering about is as I bring more and more employees back into my location, uh, can we have in-person meetings? Is there a number of people that should get together safely at once? If I have a conference room that used to hold 15 people, can I do that now? Or like, how do they think about this? Right. And, 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 the answer to everything is, of course, it depends. Hmm. Um, but a lot of the guidelines, like states will come out with guidelines that say gatherings of no more than five. And that's, or whatever the number might be. And that's really not because that number is particularly safe. It's because that number doesn't create a public health risk. You know, yeah. so, so from a contact tracing sort of perspective, it doesn't mean like that's magically, oh, five people are safe. Right. Obviously, it depends on what those five people have been up to, whether it's safe to gather with them or not. But the, those kind of limits are there to, you know, restrict or to be able to do contact tracing on those individuals. Um, what I would say in the workplace, one of the kind of two key factors is to think about how are you, you know, how are you handling the surfaces in those areas and what's your disinfection? Are you only disinfecting at night? Do you even know how your disinfection is happening? Because a lot of times the cleaning companies are just that. They vacuum and do trash and, and dust and they may or may not have a disinfection um, process that they're put in place. So that's something to examine or look at or provide, you know, wipes for everyone or whatever needs to happen. Um, the other is looking at the air in your, in the room, you know, so obviously making sure all the filters are updated. There's some filters that are called MERV 13. They'll, they'll filter more than the HEPA filters. And the other thing I like to do is um, you can get, they're about a hundred bucks. You can get a carbon dioxide reader. And when people gather, they breathe. When they breathe, mm-hmm. there's carbon dioxide goes up. So outside, if you're out, outside air, there's about 400 parts per million. If you get above 800, you know there's a ventilation problem. You've got too many people. There's something wrong with that space. You're using that space wrong. And so, and they, they do instant read. They read at about a 15 second delay. So as you have that first gathering of people in a space, you can measure actually how, how good the ventilation is by using a carbon dioxide meter. That's interesting. Is it something you would just like leave on the conference room table or put on the wall? Yeah, and they're like, they look like a little walkie talkie or there's a whole uh-huh. bunch of them. They're on Amazon or wherever, you know, they're, they're pretty readily available. You can set some of them will have alarms. So you can set like, okay, if this, if we go above 750, you know, start beeping and we know like, okay, we've got too many people here, but it's really going to depend on spaces. And you can also augment the space by putting in um, air scrubbers or, or, you know, kind of freestanding filters in the space that can, then maybe make that, keep that airflow low. And what's surprising is I've used it even just myself in a car with the outside air coming through, a car gets above the, the threshold very quickly. Oh yeah, I can imagine. And, and that's one thing I, I would emphasize, you know, as, as you think about bringing people back to work, 
what is their transport to get there? Mm-hmm. Like carpools, uh, that's an exposure. Even if you wear masks in the car, it's an exposure if you're in a car with someone. Um, you know, how, how are people getting in? You know, what's the full process from how do they leave home? How do they get to work and back safely? What happens at lunch? Um, at at Zenix, we're, we're just bringing lunch in for everyone because it's, it's too much of a, a risk okay. and an unknown yeah. to let people go out to lunch and come in. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So let's bring lunch in. Let's eliminate a risk. And, um, and one, one thing I encourage everyone to do is ask yourself, like, look at the day, look at the exposures, say, you know, what's the riskiest thing happening here? And let's eliminate mm-hmm. that. That's and a then, good. Then do it good again. It. Now it's the riskiest thing that's left until you're like, well, all these things are pretty flat now, yep. you know, but there, there may be, you know, try to identify those little spikes that are, okay, this is a, a higher probability. This is a risk here. Yeah. You know? Can we eliminate it? Can you eliminate like have people having to go out to lunch? Well then eliminate that. And that, that helps. That's a great idea. When you were talking about cars, um, most modern cars have the recirculate button where you don't have to breathe in the the skunk smell when you run over a skunk. (laughs) Should you leave that off? And should you only bring in outside fresh air now if you're in the car with someone else? Or I don't know how it works. I don't know if you do, but can you comment on that? Yeah, that that helps some. You should have the windows down. Like, you you know, just Uh, windows down, as much ventilation, sit as far apart as possible in the car. Um, But it's almost it would be that's an exposure like it even you know again even with the masks on the droplets are going to build up in that car it's in a, a very enclosed space there's not a lot of cubic feet of air one thing that has been just common in this whole thing is just confusion everywhere people not knowing what's going on and i always say that the best thing to overcome confusion is communication so in your opinion when it comes back to covid-19 pandemic in general what communication procedures do you think companies should put in place to keep employees informed about what's going on and then do things like ensure their employees are symptom free before returning to the office. What are some best practices there? Yeah. So the biggest thing is transparency and especially, you know, if there are cases at a workplace, you know, obviously there's privacy issues involved, but, but really to communicate as much as possible about what's happening in a workplace, where things are, what's going on and communicate ahead of time and get that buy-in from everyone. Hey, this is what we're thinking. This is what's happening in the community. Having, having a system like, like alert media, having, having a system like that in place where you can communicate rapidly and you know, it's going to go to every single individual. That's brilliant for contact tracing. Um, you know, one, one solution to bringing back people into work is the, is what's kind of the pod system. And so you're going to mm-hmm. say, all right, we are going to have in-person meetings. We, we've decided to do that, but only these people are ever going to meet in person and they're not going to mix with this other group. That's a, maybe a different department. And that way you have these, these different groups and pods. And you can, if there's an exposure, you can limit how far that went. And um, like films do this all the time. They, they wear like, they have different colors, color codes. And like the red, the, a, a person who's wearing red should never see a person who's wearing green. They yeah. shouldn't be with each other ever. And that way everything can be contained. And there are the communication systems of like, here's, you know, here's where you are. And if something happened within one of those groups, being able to send out an alert even during the work days, like, uh Oh, you know, this person just called in, we're going to quarantine the red group right now. Yeah. And you can send that alert out right, right then. And they can know like go home. And, and that's huge. Cause that's going to then limit the contact trace to just that group. Cause you, you were able to act quickly and decisively and communicate to everyone. And you knew it was done right. And all those people go home and now no one else has been exposed to whatever may have happened within that group. Yeah. And, and that would really, um, reduce the burden of testing that's going to happen, reduce the burden on everyone um, until the situation gets resolved. 
So error on the side of over-communication, like start in the morning, hey, if you're coming in, let me know if you have any of these symptoms. So you kind of put a stop to that right away. And then second, if you do detect something, boom, get a message out to people as quickly as possible to spread them out and you know limit the exposure. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the, and the symptom communication is really important. You know, there's a pretty standard survey now of symptoms and exposures and communicating that every morning, whether that's they have to show a screen or it somehow demonstrate that they paid attention to it. And in some ways, the clearance for work texts or emails are, are important too. It's like, okay, we know Red Group was good yesterday. Nothing's happened to Red Group. As long as you don't have these symptoms, Red Group cleared to come in today. That's right. Yeah. And it's like a big data challenge because you got to, it doesn't happen like once a week or once a month or once a year. It's like every day you're doing this. So you got to keep a record of everything and you got to be able to easily access that and then act on it. And I mean, that's clearly what we do at Alert Media. We help our clients do that kind of stuff. So. Right. And it's not even, it may even be more frequent than daily because if someone, yeah. if someone at noon says, you know, got a little sniffles, you need to have a policy already in place to say, are we going to alert the, their entire group? And say, yeah. if that person goes home, we all go home. Um, and, and how does that look? And, and then communicating that also in a way that doesn't, you know, obviously freak people out and making them understand this is all abundance of caution. And because it, it all has, you know, because something as simple as the, the person C problem or even the person B problem, someone comes into work and they get a call at, at 2 p.m. that their daughter who they live with tested positive. Yeah. You know, now, now to be able to communicate that you know, efficiently to everyone and, and be able to have everyone who that person's been exposed to. In other words, to, to have the contact trace kind of done ahead of time by right. having these groups. Yeah, is, super critical. Yeah, because if you have to go and interview the person and they have to try to recall who they saw or talk to, and then you have to create un- a unique group for those people to try to find them and communicate, that's going to be very difficult. Yeah, time consuming, more opportunity for exposure, all those things. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's talk more about the robot because I think it's really yes. cool. <laughs> we we actually have a ZenX robot in, in the Alert Media office, which is awesome. And I, I saw that it was on Grey's Anatomy, which is really cool. Uh, my wife was watching the show. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I know that thing. That was awesome. But for those who aren't really familiar, can you just go into a little bit more detail than you did earlier about the sanitation process? And it, it sounds like you started in hospitals, but how is this appropriate for like companies like Alert Media? We're, we're clearly not a, a hospital, right? But how can it benefit, you know, sports facilities, uh, inter- like movie theaters, you name it. It's, it sounds like there's a real uh, use case everywhere now. Yeah. So what the robot is, it's, it's you know, what we designed it. So it's kind of footprint is smaller than that of a wheelchair. So, you know, essentially anywhere a wheelchair could go, it can, it can easily go. It's kind of head sits down in the, in the body of the robot when it's not in use. So everything is kind of contained. It's, we've learned that hospitals are really, um, rough on their equipment. So yeah, it's yeah. very durable now and very, very reliable. Um, the operators are typically the EVS workers, environmental service workers. Uh, we can train basically anyone to use it. login, password kind of thing. Hmm. Um, rule of, you know, bottom line, like no one should be directly exposed to the light. It is an intense UV light, um, but normal glass or anything can, can block that the UVC light. So, so it's safe to use in, in a lot of environments. Um, Basically, you wheel it into an area, log in, and for SARS-CoV-2, we did a we did a study in early pandemic back in February, uh, and this has been published since then. Where at at one meter away, we're getting ninety nine point more than ninety nine point nine nine percent reduction of SARS-CoV-2 in just two minutes. So basically, in a two meter radius area from the robot, we're able to in just two minutes be able to disinfect that area. So you could easily bring it up to a workstation. You know, we have partitions can come up to block the light, and it can disinfect 
all of the things on that workstation, which are hard to do. Like a keyboard is really hard to disinfect. You know, in the hospitals, we, we, you know, we, we, we typically do two positions on either side of the bed. Before the pandemic, we were moving into non-healthcare areas. And now we really have moved into non-healthcare areas. Yeah. So we're professional sports teams, hotels, um, school districts have, have gotten it. And, and what's interesting is that the school districts have found that if you picture a classroom trying to disinfect a desk with a wipe, is really challenging to do every single surface, the legs, the top surface of the desk. Maybe there's a little nook for the books to go and then the underside, and then you got the whole chair to do. It's actually a really long process to do and, and it's really hard to do without missing any surfaces. So they're finding that the robot's actually saving them some time and some labor costs and some chemical costs. Because so you can, can actually cover more of the facility with a, one robot than you could with a person wiping things down. Exactly right. And so, and it's more thorough and, and it's removing the kind of human error element of that. Cause you, you can, there's a, a certain ratio, like you can only use a wipe to do a certain number of square inches uh, right? And before it dries out, you're supposed to get another wipe, but often that's, that mm -hmm. doesn't happen. You know, people just, they're just moving through their, their workflow. Um, and so the robot's really, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to use. It's really designed for all of these environments. And even, again, even before the pandemic, while we were in, Healthcare predominantly, but healthcare also has a lot of offices and it has a lot of, you know, non-clinical space. Yep. And we've been pulled into those spaces to do on a, on a routine basis and waiting areas. Those are very similar to workplace waiting areas often. Um, and so we have all those protocols developed and it, it really can integrate into that um, quite well. And the light bounces around. So it doesn't have to be like the, the robot doesn't have to directly see it. It'll kind of bounce and go hit nooks and crannies. Is that um, well, it depends. So, so we like to have, you know, if there's a lot of targeted surfaces that aren't going to get direct exposure, we'll, we'll actually add, simply add another position. It's ah, easier okay. to, you know, if we need to go further or we need to come around a corner, we'll just add another, in this case, two minute position. And then we work with uh, the operators and we'll work with the customers to create uh, an efficient workflow around that. Okay. Um, you know, so the, so the operator, while it's running, they can be, you know, manual cleaning, doing trash, whatever else needs to happen. Um, we've actually created a, a, we've launched in San Antonio, uh, a service company that will come out and, and disinfect a workplace, our retail yeah. space, um, you know, before they reopen or, or periodically. And, and we found that um, we're actually cheaper than if you hire a company to come in and do a chemical disinfection. Again, not a cleaning, right. but an actual disinfection. Um, we're actually cheaper and, and faster than, and than those chemical alternatives. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, what about the companies that can't get a hold of a robot? Like, what can they do? What actions can they take to maintain a safe workplace? What would you suggest? So, I would, yeah, I would definitely look at, you know, the, the air, as we talked about, and the carbon dioxide and, and really understanding the flow of air. For surfaces, you know, providing as much as possible, you know, the individuals, the means to disinfect their areas, you know, their workstation, making sure they have wipes available. Uh, most of the cleaning, I uh, don't know that you want to rely on all, of the, all, all the way that it's been, you know, an actual disinfection, not just to clean. Uh, bathrooms are of a concern. So really thinking about how many people at once in a bathroom, um, we know that the virus can be contained and spread through fecal matter. Yeah. And um, there's some really great studies. If you go look at like the, the keyword here is toilet plume, um, mm -hmm. go Google toilet plume. <laughs> uh, and, and you'll see when you flush a toilet, there's just this like, I, I think at one point there's like 20,000 virons are just like scattered through the air and, oh my gosh. and you know, meters and meters it contaminates for. 
So, you know, really thinking about those common spaces and what's the flow there and how are those going to get disinfected? Often what we see with the robot is during the day, it can, it can do the bathrooms, you know, quite frequently because it's very easy to close the door and put the robot in there to right. shut the bathroom down for a few minutes. And, and the same thing with common areas. If there's a break room or a conference room in between meetings, things like that, the robot's great. And then at night, it can come and do a more thorough disinfection of a more systematic disinfection of the, of the workplace. Well, this has been great. I could keep going on for hours, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate everything that you shared with us today. But if anyone wants to follow up with you afterward, how can they connect with you? What's the best way for them to find you out there? Um, best way is just mark, M-A-R-K at Zenix, X-E-N-E-X.com. Okay, um, wonderful. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks again for taking time to join us on the Employee Safety Podcast today. And to the rest of you out there, remember, nothing ever goes 100% according to plan in an emergency. So, communication is incredibly important. If you can't communicate, you can't recover. Until next time. Alert Media is changing the way your leaders and response teams connect and communicate effectively when seconds matter. We provide our customers with a comprehensive solution for monitoring threats around the world and deploying fast, effective emergency communication. You need a panic-proof solution for high-stakes moments. In just a few clicks, your team can send a multi-channel notification to an impacted group of people and confirm their safety immediately. When employee safety is at stake, don't just communicate. Connect and confirm with a robust emergency communication solution. Visit alertmedia.com for more information. You've been listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.